What's up, everybody? Sultan of Strangles here, and today I am with my jujitsu crush, Kendall Rusing. Um, I've been following her for a while. Super dedicated and super successful jujitsu athlete, multiple time world champion. I remember the first time I ever saw her in person was East Coast Trials. I was talking to my good old friend Gordon Ryan, and he asked me. What, what's your type? What would you say the perfect woman looks like for you? And I pointed on the man. I'm like, her. It's like, oh, that's Kendall Rusing. Funny thing was her mother was right behind me listening to the whole thing, and it was super embarrassing. But I got to finally meet her, become friends with her, and today she's coming on the podcast, and I'm super excited about that. Uh, looking back and listening to this episode, we talked a lot more about mental health and spirituality and planning your life out. Uh, other than jujitsu. Um, it was a great episode. I learned a lot from her, especially the concept of priming and the concept of just doing 15 minutes of unproductive stuff a day will help you with your productive stuff. So yeah, that was amazing. I had a blast and can't wait to do it again, guys. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. But before you do, make sure to follow me at K-O-O-L-R-A-K. At Immortals Jiu-Jitsu, at Rambling with Rack. Check out my website, immortalsjujitsu.com. And make sure to buy my instructional, Sultan of Strangles Scarfhold Series. Hope you guys enjoy the episode, and see you soon. Instagram and then Instagram like did a notification that opened and it like took me out of the page. So oh really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think in the browser is better. <clears throat> okay, cool. All right. Cool. Um, All right, so... let's try again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's up, everybody? Sultan of Strangles here, and today we are here with none other than my jujitsu crush, multiple time world champion in jujitsu, California state wrestling champion and national champ kendall rusing how are you doing today i'm so happy you finally came on yeah i'm super happy to be here i'm really really excited we obviously um have some great chemistry on camera so we'll see how it goes on audio too i think it'll be great (laughs) so as far as the great chemistry should we should we uh save that for the end or should we just start with, you know, uh, getting to know you a little more, a little more with the audience for now. <laughs> You're the boss. You lead the way and I'm, I'm all, I'm all ears. You know what? Let, let's just get right, right into the, right into the controversy. Um, <laughs> controversy. So, believe it or not, there was controversy over that. So uh, for those of you who don't know, after I won my who's number one match, Kendall interviewed me. And I pretty much said she was my jujitsu crush. And she said, when she said, I have a question, I said, of course, I'll go out with you. It was like a funny little thing. 
And then there was one jujitsu competitor. I, I'll leave her name out of it because I don't want her to get any more uh, exposure. Said that I was being like rude. And then the next day you posted it on your Instagram, which pretty much shows that you were pretty cool with it. So what did you think about that whole night? What did you think about my performance? And uh, did you think I was in fact being rude? <laughs> yeah, I mean, first and foremost, just want to say that to the competitor that said something about it, I don't think there were any ill intentions. She and I talked later on, too. She was really sweet. And I think she was just trying like she it, she was it came from a good place. Right. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention that first. But um, as far as your match goes, it looked great. It kind of was exactly the way that I thought it was going to go, which I said in the pre-match preview, like to the whole event. And um, yeah, you did. You did awesome. It was super dominant. Um, and then as far as the interview goes, I I didn't even think anything of it. I know a lot of people. I got a lot of messages about it. Um, I just thought that, man, it's show business, baby. Like we're, you know, we're trying to we're putting on a show for for the fans, for the crowd. And it's exactly what we should be doing. Right. Keeping it exciting, keeping it fun. So, no, I didn't think that it was like offensive or okay. anything like that. Fine with me. All good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. And in the interview, you said it's 2022 and to shoot your shot, right? So <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on in 2022, how one should behave as far as shooting their shot being, you know, there's the whole cancel culture. Where does someone find the fine line between being a gentleman and then being a jerk? You know, where's that fine line? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think that for most people, you'll know if you're if you're being a gentleman or not. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's really that much of a mystery. It's like if you're being respectful and you're you're not crossing boundaries. Like if someone is like if you're listening to the person you're speaking to and you're kind of going like you're respecting them if they say no or if mm-hmm. they're, they're, if you're like having advances and they're not going with it and you stop right there. Like, I mean, look, these things are not as long as you have some emotional intelligence, I think it's pretty hard to go wrong. So as long as you're respectful and you're kind, then there's really, you can't really go wrong. And then if you're not those things, then, you know, you probably should not be doing that, especially publicly. (laughs) It gets a little (laughs) risky. (laughs) Well, do you feel like because, because of your accomplishments and who you are, do you feel like someone would be intimidated kind of to come say hi? Um, I would say that there's definitely a possibility for that. But for me in particular, I'm pretty open and I say a lot of the, I say it a lot. I'm like, yeah, come say hi to me. Come take pictures. Like I, I love to get to know people. Um, so I think for that reason, people feel a little bit more comfortable with me. I'm also pretty open on social media and I'm pretty friendly. I try to be anyway, mm-hmm. uh, except for when I'm competing. Then I just look super mean. But other than that, <laughs> I'm pretty nice. <laughs> um, but I would say that as far as men go, like that's being approached in general. But as far as men go, yeah, there are a lot of dudes that like, they're like, oh gosh, I don't even think like I can talk to her because I'm not some famous jujitsu guy or something like that. <laughs> that does happen for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like a lot of... um. A lot of, I know you speak about body image and a lot of that. And um, I feel like it's not just with women. A lot of Mm -hmm. men just suffer from extremely low self-confidence. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I, what I try, the the message I try to send to, to the younger men of today is that, um, you know, let's, let's say you're not confident in whatever competing, you're afraid to compete, you're afraid to talk to someone, et cetera. I feel like sometimes confidence isn't the answer. Sometimes you just have to not give a shit. Hey, there's a tournament. Let me go do it. Let's see how I do. Hey, is this person re- going to reject me? Let me at least go say hi. 
So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I, I think that confidence really is not necessarily thinking that you're the best or you're amazing, but it's from coming, it's coming into the sense of I am okay with who I am or I like who I am. Or I love who I am, regardless of what the input is going to be from other people or the perception that other people are going to have and knowing that no matter what happens, like I am okay with myself and I'm at home with myself. So then it's like, if I'm getting rejected or I lose a tournament or people don't like my picture or like whatever it is, um, I still have that like self-approval within myself first. So I agree. It, it comes from like one, th- one of my favorite quotes is a Gary Vee quote. It's like, I, I don't put weight. It's something, something along the lines of like, I don't put weight in the cheering so that I don't put weight in the booing, right? So I don't give a shit about the cheering because if I give a shit about the cheering too much, then when it goes away and people start booing, then that's going to crush me. Like I have no I have no base baseline. I have no foundation of my self-esteem if it's coming from other people. And it's really easy to fall into that, not just for people um, that are in sports or on social media a lot, just in general in life, like social media just amplified what we were already doing, keeping up with the Joneses and magazines and newspaper and stuff like that. So as long as you have that self-esteem within yourself, then everything else, it's nice to get positive feedback from people, especially people that are close to us that we respect. And it's nice to be held accountable for things by people we're close to and we respect. But overall, it's like you have to have that home within yourself because nothing else is going to make up for that um, if you don't have it. Interesting. Um, so you know, with that, you're saying the self-esteem is super important. You don't necessarily have to think that you're the best, but, but trying is really important. And then also what you said, don't listen, don't let the booze get to you, but also don't let the cheers get to you. That's pretty much stoicism 101, like Marcus Aurelius, you know, mm-hmm. don't, don't. And, and that's kind of how I live my life as well, because if you get too caught up in either one, it could destroy you. Um, right. You know, we're we're in a sport where you know there's a lot of people that just look like human experiments like one percent body fat a lot of people are abusing steroids and stuff so me as a guy who's pretty much natural uh, i look like a normal dude and i do get Mm -hmm. a lot of hate for it i'm like oh this guy doesn't even look like uh an athlete etc Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what do you have to say for people in the um, in the jujitsu uh, community who have the body image issues? Like, I personally think that you have the perfect body, but you have uh, you have posted before that you've had body image issues before. Like, how did you combat that? Well, I have a pretty intense history with body image, uh, seeing as I had a pretty severe eating disorder for most of my teenage mm-hmm. and like into my young adulthood years. So I've been in a in a recovery program for six years now. So it's quite intensive, like the way that my body image um, journey has been. Mm-hmm. But I would say the major thing is, um, is really, again, just going back to like finding that home within yourself, because a lot of times our body image issues come from worrying about what other people are thinking about their perception of our body. So I think that like our our society, not just in jiu-jitsu. I mean, jiu-jitsu is an extreme example because as athletes, we are a lot of our, of our, of our perception of ourself has to do with our body and the way we perform. And then the way that we're perceived as an athlete by other people. Right. And there is a lot of validity to the, what's coming in from fans, what's coming in on social media and also things that competitors might say, or other people might say to us. So there is a lot of that there, but I really just kind of think that 
if you shift your perception as much as you can from valuing what your body looks like to valuing what your body can do and accomplish and create for you, then a lot of shifts start to happen. So for example, for me with this ADCC camp, this is actually the first time going into a competition that I am not having the goal of being as lean as possible. I always thought that if I was as lean as possible, then I go in with the best conditioning. But this time in particular, because of healing my back injury and because of the weight class being open, we actually made the goal of me being as heavy as possible without losing my conditioning or my speed. So without sacrificing speed, I wanted to be as heavy as possible. Mm -hmm. And that was a really weird shift for me because normally I, my, my goal is to be like as low percent body fat as possible. And I've had the six pack, I've gotten really lean and I don't have that right now, but I'm at a better performance than I used to be. So all that being said, what gives me a lot of confidence now where I stop giving a shit about what other people think about my body or like even, even just obsessing or self like focusing on that so much is focusing on what it can do for me. Right. So my performance is higher and the aesthetic part of it is kind of an afterthought rather than the aesthetic part being at the forefront and then worrying about my performance second. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you. Um, I'm, I'm cutting for a tournament tomorrow and I was talking about my weight cut. And some guy just decides to uh, message me. So you got to worry about getting rid of that belly first. And uh, mm. it's like people are just very, usually trolls. They're very bored and they're very empty inside. So they have to find a way to make themselves feel more validated. And I always tell people to ignore the trolls, even though it's very hard because they're everywhere, you know. Um, but I want to ask you, uh, as far as the disorder, what, what was it and how did you overcome it? Yeah, I um when I was when I was wrestling in high school, so I was 13, 14, mm -hmm. um, I developed bulimia. So I suffered with bulimia, anorexia, and a couple, you know, some other things that come along with that. Mm -hmm. And it's you know, it's not a clear cut answer as how I he as like exactly how I healed. But mm -hmm. when I was eighteen, I went into a recovery program to to start to get some relief there, right? So I went into this program and then from about the ages of, gosh, how old was I? I want to say I was 17 when I first mm -hmm. went into the program. Um, so from about 17 to like 19, took me a while to really get my feet on the ground there. And then since about 19, I've had like pretty strong recovery and just developed, you know, more and more awareness through there. So I didn't end up going to a treatment center like a lot of people do. That was kind of the next step if I didn't develop through this program. Um but yeah, so it's, you know, it, that has been not just a program to help develop awareness around the eating disorder, but also just kind of a program for living and program for life and just being a better person. Um, so that's really how, how it happened for me. And I documented a lot of it on social media for a long time, like especially in my in the like a few years ago. And in the last couple of years, I haven't talked about it quite as much um, for multiple reasons. I mean, for one reason, it just wasn't as big of a part of my life. I wasn't focused on it as much because I had so much healing and so much recovery that it was just on my mind less. Um, but two, it also just be kind of came something that like was really sacred and, and even a little bit more private to me. So I like share about it now, but a little bit less than I used to because it would kind of like, we're talking about like the, whatever you share on the internet, you're inviting people to comment on. Right. So before I used to just share completely openly and put it all out there. And now I still try to be really open. But I think part of my healing process was realizing and deciding 
what was right to share with which people at which times and like what do I want to invite people in on and it kind of became like a self-respect kind of thing where it was like do I really need to like put out there at this time um but I'm still figuring that out as we go right so I still like to share about it though because I think a lot of people do struggle with it as an athlete it was really hard for me to go out on stages and be in front of a lot of different people and wonder what people were thinking but if you think about like the the tale of um Narcissus it's like self-deprecate like self-deprecation or self-pity or self-hatred is still a form of self-obsession right and so if we can get out of self-obsession because that can be the death of us whether it's positive or negative if we can get out of self-obsession positive or negative then we're going to be a lot happier and we can do a lot better for our communities rather than being stuck in the negativity or the positivity of it so i don't draw as much attention to it anymore but i do think that it's important to to mention it and, and to talk to people about it who who may need it but the overall like cut and dry part of it is like I don't cut weight anymore I don't try to put myself into a a weight class at ever I just fight what I weigh I eat what supports my training and I kind of just I live my life around being happy and being a good person rather than like being in a certain weight class which is the opposite of what I used to do yeah um I could totally relate with that and you know I used to be I used to be 230 pounds and um, I'm around the uh, upper 190s now. Mm-hmm. And I used to, I, I didn't eat for nourishment. I just ate because I was, I don't know, I was in pain. Like I would eat and then the feeling of my stomach stretching, the pain of that, I enjoyed that. And I talked to a doctor, he pretty much said I had binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And um, What's beautiful is when I found jujitsu is kind of it took the thought off of that and food kind of took a back seat in my life. And, you know, I'm still trying my best to get to a lower weight. But exactly like you said, uh, self-pity and self-hatred is also a form of self-obsession. So if you continue down that path, it's going to be it's going to be a really hard one. Um, Now, as far as sharing stuff, choosing what to share and what to not. have people reached out to you before about your journey and and told you how it helped them overcome their own obstacles? Yeah, I've had a lot of that, which is one of the reasons I keep sharing about it. I mean, the original reason I shared a lot about this kind of stuff or the the real reason I share about vulnerability or fears that I have or things like that is, I mean, it really just started as kind of like a journal. Like it was fun to talk about, or I don't know if fun, it was a good process for me to write about things and kind of share what was going on with me for my own practice like it was part of my own process and then I would say that I would get all this feedback of how helpful it was and it was encouraging to keep doing it but I really started it for me because it was a nice way for me to process what was going on and then I kept doing it because I do hear um, a lot about like from impact of impacts it has on other people and that makes me feel like there's a really good purpose behind it. So that's why I'm saying like, I used to share so much about my eating disorder because it was what was going on with me. But now with a lot of healing, I don't feel the need to share about it as much um, because it's more, I don't process it as much that way anymore. But because I hear so much good feedback all the time, when I do, it encourages me to share more. So I'd say that's more the reason I share nowadays. Um, But for years, it was just really part of my process. Interesting. Um, so, you know, as far as as far as weight classes and stuff, you know, people often have to cut a lot of weight to make these weight classes and it'll cause a lot of, you know, physical and a lot of emotional damage. 
what are your thoughts on adding more weight classes to the female weight classes? Because I think it's a little crazy <laughs> that yeah. upcoming, it's two. <laughs> it's only two weight classes. I think there should be at least five. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think almost everybody does. You know, even Mo, who organizes ADCC, will talk about this all the time. And he mm-hmm. says it's his number one goal is to get more women in ADCC, more weight classes, and then the divisions to be bigger. Because right now our divisions are eight women each, and it's only minus 60 and plus 60, which is 132. So, I mean, and even in IBJJF, the highest women's weight class right now is 175 and up. So if you're looking at you know, the general population of women who do jiu-jitsu, there is definitely space for a lot more weight classes. But ADCC yeah. is the most extreme, right? I, we absolutely need, you know, at least four weight classes, if not five, and the the divisions to be 16-man uh, brackets, just like the men have. Uh, so, yeah, I would definitely like to see that happen. I, there's rumor that the next ADCC, there's going to be three women's weight classes, and they're going to be 16 women divisions. So fingers crossed that that happens, and then hopefully – after that, even more because even three is going to be very small. Okay. Um. What are What are some ways do you think, like as athletes, we could petition for something like this? Well, there was a petition last ADCC that was started. I think it was started by Anna Carolina and Luana Algazar, who are both world black belt world champions. Mm-hmm. Um, they started a, a petition for this, and it got a bunch of signatures. And I mean, the main thing is, I think what people have been doing is when the topic comes up on social, people go in the comments, they tag Mo, they're really, you know, adamant about it. The thing is that people's voices do matter. And I think especially male athletes, because in jujitsu right now, um, I can sit and I can identify problems that women have within jujitsu and equality and all that stuff and opportunity. But the major thing is focusing on the solution, right? Because sitting in the in the upset part of it doesn't really help me or the next generation. So I think what really the solution becomes is the people with the loudest voices right now, which are the, the high-level male athletes or people who build their social up to get more attention, those people, if they speak out on these kinds of things, then that's really when the change happens. And when they say that things are needed – then the organizers listen because they're kind of running the show right now. Right. So it's just, you know, the male athletes that have a lot of visibility that have a lot of power. That's why when all that stuff with fight sports and cyborg happened, the men who spoke up and the men who mentioned um, their support for the victims and things of that nature, that was the more was even more powerful than the general public because it brings attention in a way that people that are putting on fights that are changing weight classes that are making rules that are allowing certain people in events and things like that are actually caring and paying attention now. Yeah. hundred percent agree that, uh, you know, if we want to make a change, it can't just be just men or just women. We all have to like come together and, and really work on making a change because I, I do, I, I really do disagree that 175 is the highest, um, 175 plus, um, and if you do look at the general jujitsu population, we could easily have a 185, 195, 205 weight class for sure. And I think they'll be packed. Um, mm-hmm. So this interview is kind of going in reverse order. I wanted to ask you all those <laughs> questions at the end. That's Once right. we got warmed up, we jumped right in. So back to back to on track. Um, <laughs> you know, I know you wrestled uh, as a kid and I noticed something unique that you started in freestyle. Did you start in freestyle so, wrestling? So I actually started in folk style wrestling because okay. I started in high school, my freshman year. Uh huh. 
And then what happens in California is for the girls, you well, and some of the guys, but especially the girls is you do folk style during the high school season. And then in the summer we would start freestyle because that's when all the international competitions would happen. Yeah. So yeah. So I would start folk style and then in the summers I would do freestyle. That's how it started. Interesting. Um, yeah. So for me, I did folk style and then I would go to Iran to visit my dad in the summer and I didn't know the difference between the two. And I was always told to get double underhooks. And as soon as I got double underhooks on a on a freestyle or Greco guy, I got suplexed onto my neck. So oh. it, was a really, it was a really nice crash course. Um, so what, what style would you say you prefer? And what style do you think translates more to jiu-jitsu or MMA? Oh, my gosh. I mean, one of the hardest things of transitioning to wrestling is that – or transitioning from wrestling to jiu-jitsu or MMA – is that we're taught to turn to our stomach. Yeah. So then, I mean, or to our hands and knees, right? In in free in folk style. So that is a really thing hard thing to un to unpack. But Very. yeah. So I, I mean I would say that freestyle probably gave me a better path to jiu-jitsu because the the groundwork in folk style doesn't apply very well to jujitsu, right? So like, I mean, none of the groundwork really applies to, like, to jiu-jitsu that well, other than, like, understanding how to execute a power half or ride someone's hips, really. Yeah. But that comes from finishing takedowns anyway. So the reason I say freestyle is because you spend so much more time on the feet where you're not doing periods of top-bottom and you're yes. not, you know, you're not spending a lot of time there. So in freestyle, if you're focused so much on the feet and then the referee standing you up after inactivity on the ground, then you're getting so many more reps in. So that's really the only reason that I would say freestyle is a lot more effective, not even really because of the take the nature of the takedowns or the throws or anything like that, really just because of the amount of time spent on the feet. So definitely freestyle, I think, is better for jujitsu, um, but both of them can be implemented really well. And then the major challenge is overcoming, like not thinking that it's a good idea to turn to your stomach. Yeah, exactly. And also um, a big thing is, you know, the clasping rule. In some positions in folk right. style, you're not allowed to clasp. And that's kind right. of in the butt, right? Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't apply to jiu-jitsu at all. But I think that's something that's easy to break once you go from wrestling to jiu-jitsu because you're like, oh, yes, okay, I can finally do this. So it's nice. Like, you can kind of just let that go. Yeah. Um, and your, um, your main train – I know you train at Gracie Baja your main trainer for a while was your father, right? Yeah. So my dad is my professor. Um, but my, per, like the person I work with now, as far as my instruction and I have for the last couple of years, the main person is Saul. So Saul Vieira is like my instructor, as far as my technique and my technical growth goes, my dad gave me all my belts. Um, but when I was a pro bell, I started training with a couple different people. I would train a lot with Octavio Souza in Huntington. I would train a lot with Ana Laura Cordero in Alpland, and they're both black belt world champions, and then a couple other instructors as well. But the main person that's kind of tracked my stuff, my progress throughout the last couple of years would definitely be um, Saul because he we work on all my technique together, and he kind of gives me plans for each camp and watches all the instructionals that I need to learn stuff from and teaches it to me and all that stuff. So he, yeah, he's the number one um, instructor for me. Interesting. Um, so there there's, you know, I spoke to someone uh, not, it's not the same, but it's his little brother and it, he pretty much says sometimes there's a dilemma when, when your father is your coach or your um, or your brother is your coach. Yeah. When it's time to coach, you got to, 
pretty much break that family tie. And at that mm. point, they're your coach, not your father, not your brother. Um, what was like? What was that like growing up for you? Being trained, you know. I know you you have a different coach now. What was it like getting trained by your father? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think my dad handled it really well. I mean, you have to remember that I started jujitsu super young, so I was five when I started jujitsu and we were both training with Ricardo Gamera's and Temecula. My dad opened his own school as a brown belt. So from that point on, he was my instructor. I think I was a yellow orange belt at the time or something like that. Mm -hmm. So my dad handled it really well where he, he would coach me, but I mean, as a kid, like if I would get frustrated with my dad being my coach, he would kind of back off. Like he would just relax and let me have like whatever moment I needed to have, especially in competition. Like if I would lose, instead of trying to talk to me right after or give me all these instructions, he knew that like I wasn't going to want to talk to dad at that moment. I didn't want to talk to anybody, but especially like hear instructions from my dad. Cause yes, I think as an adult, you can separate those things, but you can never truly separate that relationship. Like you can say all you want, but at the end of the day, that relationship still exists, like that cord, that tie is still there. So I think that it is up to both people to kind of decide when it's productive and when it's not right. So with my dad, he would like just kind of let me have my space if I needed it. And then he would monitor like, okay, now it's a good time to go over this thing that I wanted to talk to her about. And then as I got older, I got, you know, more experienced and got more mature um, and was able to kind of communicate that like, hey, I really want to learn this, but right now, like, I just, I'm having a hard time focusing. So can we circle back to this or, you know, just, just communication, everything is communication, right? So I think most people have a hard time saying out loud, like, Hey, I'm really frustrated right now, or Hey, this isn't a good time. Or like, I'm really having a really hard time with this. Like most people just can't say that out loud. So they just kind of keep it in and then they're kind of just pissed off and they're not really in, like, like present anyway, and they'll start getting attitude or whatever. So even with Saul now, it's funny, like Saul and I were together for almost four years and in a romantic relationship. And we've been separated now for almost a year and we continue our coaching relationship throughout. Right. So you can imagine even that relationship, too. It's like I'm really lucky that we were very close friends. But as our relationship has changed over the years and he's remained my coach, we have meetings every week to discuss like what's working, what's not working, what do we need to adjust? And in those meetings, I'm able to communicate. And he is, too, like hey, during training, like this is working for me and this is not. Can you do this instead or what can I improve on? So it really just comes down to communication. Like there are challenges with any kind of coaching relationship, whether or not your family, romantic, um, you know, brother, sister, like best friends, business partners. All What's up, guys? This podcast is now sponsored by ExpressVPN. Sending data over an unencrypted internet connection is like sending a postcard. Your message is wide open for the mailman and any of those other nosy people to see. Whether you're connected to an unencrypted internet network on your phone, computer, tablet, TV, etc., if you're sending countless pieces of information into the digital world that can be seen and intercepted by many different parties before they get to your intended destinations. Guys, go to expressvpn.com slash R-A-K for three months and a discount if you use my code. I will leave the link in the description. But a VPN or virtual private network creates a secure tunnel between your device and the internet. In other words, it puts an envelope around your postcard so no one could sneak a peek at your private correspondence. ExpressVPN protects you from hackers who try to steal your private information.
Every time you connect to an unencrypted Wi-Fi network at airport, hotels, coffee shops, or even at home, you're at risk. A hacker connected to the same unencrypted Wi-Fi network can steal your personal info. With only basic computer knowledge, a hacker could even gain access to your passwords, financial details, or even your emails. ExpressVPN encrypts your internet connection using the highest standard of encryption currently available. If you'd like to take a hacker with a supercomputer billions of years to crack. Guys, I will not name what countries I've been to because I don't want to get killed, but I've been to some countries where Instagram, Facebook, social media is completely blocked by a firewall. And the only way you could view those things is a VPN. And thank God I had ExpressVPN on my visits and it made everything easy. I like to use DraftKings, which is a sports betting app. And if I'm not in New Jersey, it says, oops, not in New Jersey, you can't bet. But guess what? ExpressVPN, baby. I say, guess what, guys? I am in New Jersey and I put my bets in. Another thing I like to do with ExpressVPN, let's say you're watching a YouTube video and it says not available in your country or song not available in your country. Guess what? I'm going to make my VPN in whatever country I got to be to listen. If you're trying to get married to someone rich overseas, um, put your VPN in New York City, even though you live in Timbuktu, get matched with someone, uh, fall in love and move over there. All right. Your internet service provider can see everything you do. Us ISPs can legally sell your data to ad companies. UK and Australian ICPs are required to keep logs of websites you visit. The apps you use in the private conversations you have for one to two years. Governments, large corporations, websites constantly survey you and harvest your data for their own agendas. ExpressVPN puts a stop to that by encrypting all your data and hiding your location. Hey guys, ever um, have a conversation with your friends about something and the next thing you know, you're getting an ad? Yep, that's right. When you let your microphone, um, give your microphone access to whatever app you're on, they could listen to whatever you're saying. You want to stop that? ExpressVPN, baby. ExpressVPN gives you unrestricted um, access to all parts of the internet. Many websites or apps are blocked or or restricted depending on where you are in the world. Certain countries even censor the internet and don't let you access websites freely. Think of a YouTube video you weren't able to watch, a website you couldn't visit, or a sports match you were unable to stream. What about stuff that's cheaper in other countries like Spotify subscriptions, flight tickets, online games? ExpressVPN allows you to reroute your connection to a server in a country of your choice, making geo restrictions a thing of the past. All right, guys, uh, I hope you end up using uh, ExpressVPN. They're sponsoring the podcast. I'm going to put a link in the description. If you don't want to look at the link, it's expressvpn.com slash R-A-K. That is expressvpn.com slash R-A-K. Hope you guys use it. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. All of those relationships have different nuances, but as long as you're communicating in a respectful manner, then all those things can be addressed, in my opinion. Interesting. Yeah, that that's a that's a big really that's a big thing I notice uh, a big theme as far as not only um, between a student and a teacher uh, with training partners. You know, I've seen mm. schools break up, affiliations break up because of the lack of because of the lack of uh, communication. 
And right. um, the, the problem is there's a lot of fear. You know, some people are just afraid to confront. So they'll just, like hide something and just let it boil. And then one day they'll just blow up. And, and by then it's, it's a little too hard to mend things. Right. So, yeah, 100 percent communication is key. Um, so I wanted to ask. So you you grew up wrestling freestyle and folk style mm-hmm. and then you won states and then you won nationals. Correct. Yeah. You want to just walk us through kind of that experience? Yeah, I mean, I have a, an interesting relationship with state because my freshman year I took fourth, my sophomore year I took third, and my junior year I took third. But my sophomore and my junior year I won nationals, and my junior year I won Fargo, oh, so wow. which is the freestyle nationals. So you can imagine, I'm like, oh my god, dude, I'm winning nationals and I can't freaking win state. It was like the biggest joke that like I could win nationals and I could make world teams and I could travel internationally, but I couldn't freaking win state. I was losing in semis every year. Um, and then, so my senior year, I, man, I came in with this crazy vengeance and I pinned everybody in under a hundred seconds, my senior year of state and just completely dominated. Like it was an amazing tournament. Um, but that's really what my wrestling career looked like. I mean, I had some really good success early on. I had some big losses. I made some junior national teams, some cadet world teams, traveled internationally for the first time, like my sophomore and junior year. Um, And my entire life at that time revolved around winning the Olympics. So everything that I did was about where I was going to go to college, when I was going to be at the Olympic Training Center, how I was going to get there. And I graduated high school in 20, oh my gosh, 2015, uh-huh. <laughs> I think. Yes, I think 2015. And or was it 2016? No, it must have been 2015. And so my whole plan was to be a training partner for the 2016 Olympics, but then attend the Olympics hopefully in 2020. That was really uh-huh. like what the path was for me with USA Wrestling. So then I ended up going to Simon Fraser University to wrestle, which is a national training center for the Canadian team. Oh, wow. But they, okay. Yeah, but they wrestle with the NCAA, so I could, like, still do both and and compete with the women's team. And then instead of going to the Olympic Training Center for during college, that was the other option. But I decided not to do that because I was kind of just going to be a crash dummy for Olympic year. It wasn't really um, going to be, like, a safe environment for me. Uh-huh. So I went to college, did the whole thing. And then when I left wrestling, it was 2016, and I really mainly left because of the eating disorder. So I was – just in such a horrible place. I was cutting 20 to 30 pounds every month or so. Yeah, it was really, really rough. And I was super depressed. I don't know how I was making it through training three times a day, getting grid grades in, in a tough university. It was it was nuts, but I did it. And then I came home during that summer, I was absolutely crushed. And it was just, um, I ended up stopping wrestling at that point, which was a huge huge deal because it was my entire life all I wanted to do was win the Olympics but I knew that if I kept doing it I was my health was just going downhill I was getting closer and closer to um, some serious damage and that's when I came back to jiu-jitsu again and I was uh I think I was 19 or I was almost now I was almost 19 yeah yeah and uh it turned out for the best because look at <laughs> yeah. you know, look what happened and one thing about weight cutting that I, a lot of people don't realize because I, um, I had, you know, I graduated a lot earlier and um, I, I had a, a woman on our wrestling team. And what a lot of people don't realize that when a guy cuts weight, 
yeah, it, it sucks. And, you know, you, you're, you have an attitude and all this shit. When a girl cuts weight, it completely messes up the menstrual cycle and all mm-hmm. that. So it's actually a lot more dangerous for women cutting weight. So when um, people are like, just suck it up, just know that it's, oh, man, it's, it's much tougher cutting weight for women for sure. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty dangerous, right? And and everything can be done with science and you try to change and you try to make it optimal. But the truth is that even for men, there's just no optimal way to cut mass amounts of weight, right? It's like you can do it the, to the best of your ability, um, but there's no way that is actually in, in, in an improvement of your health or a neutral, like it always going to affect your health negatively, even if it's small. So just important to keep in mind. Yeah, it's like... um. They're like, oh, but it's just water weight. Well, it's not just water. You're losing a lot of electrolytes. And they're like, oh, well, we some people have a full day to, to regain the weight. You can't gain all of those electrolytes and all those vitamins, minerals in one day. You just- well, and you, you also have to remember that the highest injury rate happens when people are recovering from, from weight cutting. Like if you look at rate, sports that have very high concussion rates, like wrestling and MMA, most of these people are much more susceptible or human beings in general are much more susceptible to, to bad concussions when they are cutting weight because of the way that it affects the protection of your brain, right? So there's a lot of studies being done around injuries um, to the brain and injuries to the body when somebody is recovering from a weight cut that's important to keep in mind. It's not necessarily just how shitty you feel. It's the effects that it has on your body afterwards. So it can be really scary. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the fluid that's in our brain is made of liquid right. and when you're depriving your body of that if you're if you get a, a headshot the wrong time it could be kind of permanent permanent injury you know right exactly um you know i i noticed a recurring theme in you know um successful athletes you know if you look at the meow brothers if you look at tiki and ronde barber from um you know football when you look at Matt Hughes and his brother, is that a lot of these uh, high-level athletes had twin twin brothers or twin sisters. Mm. I know you have a sister. Is Emma your twin? So Emma is um, two and a half years younger than I am. No way. Yes. I would everyone... <laughs> <laughs> what? This whole time I thought you were twins. No. So she's two and a half years younger um, but we look a lot alike and we, we have a lot of similarities and she's my best friends. I mean, we might as well be twins. Like we're very telepathically connected for sure. Uh-huh. So yeah, we're super, super tight. That's so cool. So does she, she also does jujitsu or. Yeah, she's a purple belt. She's a badass too. Um, she does well competitively, but she's getting ready to go into vet school. So she's like very, um, uh, career inclined rather than just just jujitsu so she's balancing both right now she just moved to texas actually oh wow okay yeah what austin yeah she moved to austin um she and her boyfriend live there and uh she's doing jujitsu full-time and uh i'm sorry she's doing jujitsu and working full-time as well in a in a vet hospital that's amazing so when are you making that move to austin i know people ask me all the time Uh since i'm working with flow and all the Uh jujitsu's moving there but I love California, man. I think it would be really hard for me to be away from the ocean. Um, I'm such a water baby that I think that would be tough. But I like going there. And I think it'd be fun to have a place there and kind of go back and forth. That I could see myself doing for sure. Yeah, that, that's what I try to do. I try to, you know, come back every, every couple of months and just update my training and go back to New Jersey. 
and uh and teach you know um so i wanted to ask you um for what what are some of your goals for the remainder of your jujitsu career and do you have any goals post jujitsu career to like open up a school or anything like that yeah, uh, for jujitsu, I mean, the major thing right now is winning ADCC, um, whether it's this time or the next time around. I think that a lot of people get real hell bent on like, like I, and, and I say this because I used to be one, like if you had asked me this before, I might have said like, oh, well, winning ADCC this time, this is what I'm going to do. Um, but I think now it's more like, I really trust that like the plan of whatever needs to happen is what is going to happen. So I'm doing everything in my power to win ADCC and I believe that I will do it, but I'm not overcommitted. Like that's the only thing that I need to do because I think life is a lot bigger than jujitsu too, but whatever I do, I commit a hundred percent of myself to it. So it's like, that's the plan right now is to go in, look to win ADCC. Um, I used to only always want to win the black belt Gi world championships. And I do th- still think that that's a big goal of mine, but it's more so that like, if I feel called to do that and I feel inclined to do that, then I will. And right now I'm really not feeling called to do Gi training. And if that changes, then that'll be great. But right now it's not my goal. So that's number one. And then just to continue, or that's like, would be number two. And then just to continue to be on really big shows and, um and give good performances for the fans i could see myself potentially moving to mma later in the future if the weight classes yeah if the weight classes change but right now it's not an option because the lowest where the highest is 145 um (laughs) yeah it's crazy right it's ridiculous i know so that would be but i mean i'm not like overly attached to it that might be something in the future and um i really love sports broadcasting man i'm having a great time doing that i really enjoy it and working with flow And, um, and I'm very open. Like I used to plan out my life five to 10 years in advance all the time. And then every time I did that, it would change, you know? So now I'm kind of like, I put some things out there that I'm excited about that I am passionate about, but I'm also very much in the mindset of like, well, I don't know what it's going to look like in five years. I think life's a lot bigger than jujitsu, but I don't know exactly what that'll look like. And I'm just going to kind of follow the passion and see what happens. Interesting. I kind of I kind of like that answer um, because something that I tell a lot of my students to do is schedule schedule things. And I remember when I asked you to come on the podcast, you're like, oh, message my manager and we'll book I'll book you in advance. I'm like, damn, it's professional <laughs> as hell. So, um, you know, I know you have a very, very busy schedule. How do you manage that? Do you do block scheduling? Do you have an app? How do you do it? Yeah, I mean, I'm learning all the time. I definitely don't think that I'm perfect at it. One of the best things that I did recently um, was have one of my best friends, it was her idea actually, start managing me. That's actually another example of someone who we have monthly meetings to check in so that we can prioritize the relationship that we have as friends to say like, hey, what's working? What do you need from me? What needs to be adjusted, right? So she started to manage me. That's helped a lot. Um, She just helps, you know, scheduling in seminars, things like that. But on a day-to-day scheduling basis, I have the same schedule weekly as far as my training and my recovery, like my physical therapy, um, my meetings with my mindset coach, my meetings with my technical coach, things of that nature. So I keep all of those on point. And then I, one thing I do that is that I commit, and this is something new that I added that felt that feels really good, is I want to be the best at 
living life, not just the best at jujitsu. Cause when I'm the best at being happy and the best at living life, I do my best work in jujitsu anyway. So I schedule in 15 minutes a day of non-productivity, which is funny because I'm such a productivity based person, but that's wow. why I needed to do this. So it's like not answering messages. I'm not doing laundry. I'm doing nothing, whether that's reading, I might watch part, I might watch a show. I might, you know, listen to something that I really like. That's not just educational for a purpose, you know? So it's like, I do things, I do 15 minutes a day minimum of something that's non-productive. Um, that's been a game changer for my schedule. It brings me a lot of energy. It helps me feel really fired up for other things, brings me closer to myself. So, but other than that, man, I just, I, keep, I have an hour and a half morning routine. That's the same every day, unless I need to shift it a little bit, but it's usually the same. I keep my weekly schedule. Things are super dialed in right now because of ADCC, of course. And then I allow myself a certain amount of looseness for other things to kind of give and take, but I have like non-negotiables and then the rest, I kind of like go with the flow um with myself interesting um i have that i i mean i should do the 15 minutes of non-productivity i have this mental issue that i have a very hard time just enjoying myself if mm-hmm. i'm not if i'm not doing something productive i feel like a piece of shit so like i can't really watch tv if yeah. i'm reading a good if i'm reading a book it has to be non-fiction i have to be learning right. something i can't just have fun and when i have Support for Rambling with Rack is brought to you by Manscaped, who's the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off free worldwide shipping with the code RAKRACK at manscaped.com. And if my math's correct, that's about 8 million balls. Guys, Manscaped has truly changed my life. Y'all know Middle Eastern men. We got some serious, dense forestry down there. I have tried everything. I've tried the -the over-the-counter buzzers. I have tried straight razors. I have tried regular razors. And nothing has made Manscaping easier than Manscaped. All right, guys, so the Performance Package 4.0 by Manscaped has arrived, and oh man, is it a game changer. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a Travel Bag to hold your goodies. Guys, the Ball Deodorant, all right? Let's say you're on your last set of leg press at the gym, and your girl hits you up, says, what are you doing? You don't have time to take a shower. You just take a quick little um, whiff of that ball deodorant, wipe down there, and head over to her house. First off, the Lawnmower 4.0, the trimmer is a future of grooming, and dare I say the greatest ball trimmer ever. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 is a waterproof and also has 400K LED spotlight you need for more precise shaves. Because this trimmer is waterproof, you can say goodbye to the mess on the bathroom floor. Guys, as an Iranian man, I could attest to you that when using a regular buzzer, if you go to my bathroom floor, it literally looks like you just entered the Amazon rainforest. So 
having the trimmer right now has made my job so much easier. You thought that was good. Want to take your grooming game even further to the next level? The Performance Package 4.0 also includes the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Trimmer. The Weed Whacker is also waterproof and provides proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps reduce nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate nose holes. Their Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner will change the way you approach your hygiene routine. Trust me when I say this, fellas. Your balls will thank you. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and Shed Travel Bag. Bring your comfort and boxers to another level. It's time to take care of yourself. Go to manscaped.com and get 20% off plus free shipping worldwide with code word RAK, R-A-K. Get 20% off free shipping with the code R-A-K at manscaped.com. That is 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com with code word R-A-K. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Fun. It's really, I feel like shit about it. So yeah. that, that, that kind of, I think I'm going to do the whole um, 15 minutes of non-productivity a, a day and see how that works. Well, I, I, one thing I want to say about that is I used to be the same exact way, but what I realized is if you look throughout your day, you're probably doing a combined 15 minutes of that somehow anyway, but yeah. it doesn't, but it doesn't actually feel good because you're either beating yourself up about it. It's not intentional or it's mindless stuff like scrolling on Instagram or zoning out on something or getting pulled into a conversation. That's not like, like it's gossip. It's not even fun. Like it's, it's energy draining. So the way that I kind of, I have to mind trick myself a lot into forming new habits, especially things like that. I would be like, oh, I can't do that because it's not productive. It's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. The way that I mind tricked myself into it, which is true, but it just helped me to do it this way. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I'm already doing that for probably more than 15 minutes a day. So what if I took out the mindless stuff and I just made this 15 to 30 minute chunk very intentional. And that is a, a version of productivity in itself. And then that this actually makes me feel relaxed. This makes me feel more fired up to do a better job of the other things that I'm going to do during the day. And so then actually I feel less inclined because I'm actually allowing my mind to relax for that 15 to 30 minutes or whatever, sometimes longer. Then I'm not spending so much time scrolling. Then I'm not getting pulled into mindless conversations. I'm not getting distracted while I'm driving, you know, those kinds of things. So it just, it really, um, it's like a bat. it's, if you, if you reverse engineer it, it's actually the most productive thing that I can do for myself. Interesting. Um, it's, it's funny you said that because, um, you know, similar to forcing yourself to, to do that, um, to, to just actually enjoy your leisure and not scrolling down Instagram. Uh, yeah. I always ask myself, like, what's the point of reading fictional books? You're not learning anything. So I started just forcing myself to read fiction and I'll just get lost in it. And I'll be like, damn, I feel so much better after. So mm. I, could kind of, I could kind of relate to you on that. Um, now, as far as the uh, 15 minutes of non-productivity, what are some things that you do? Oh, um, I, a couple of different things. I mean, for me, I li- I'm lucky enough to live close to the ocean. So I'll just go sit like by the ocean, whether it's 15 minutes, 30 minutes or an hour whether I'm like, go, I'll do a full go in the beach thing, or I'll just sit 
at the park, like where I can look at the ocean and just kind of sit and enjoy my time. And I'll go into like a meditative state or I'll just kind of like be and exist. A lot of it is just being like Mm -hmm. masculine energy is doing feminine energy is being, we all have both. So it's not that men shouldn't be in their feminine ever, right? We (laughs) all need both of those energies. But for me, I have such a masculine life that I need to tap into that. So it's just being, so it's like, whether I'm at the ocean, it might be, um, a big one for me is like, if I'm in the car putting on music and just singing, like I love to sing, but I get distracted with trying to work while I'm driving, which is not a good thing, but I'll be using Siri to answer messages or I'll be listening to a podcast to learn. And those are all productivity things. So I'll just kind of like allow myself to enjoy the music. Um, the other day I took an absence salt bath and I was going to create a bunch of content while I was in the bath. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to read this book that I'm really enjoying right now. And I did that instead and I put my phone away. So, you know, those are a couple um, of examples. Today, actually, I watched an episode of Sex in the City, which is 29 minutes long. And I didn't. <laughs> and I haven't watched TV. And I can't even remember the last time I watched the show. It's definitely been over like two months. And that was really nice and relaxing. And I drank my coffee and I my phone didn't answer messages. And so that was another version. So a lot of different things. Interesting. Um, it's crazy when you say... When you say uh, uh, filming some content while I'm driving and in the bath and all that, other people might hear that and like, what's she thinking? But it's literally exactly the way I live my life too. I'm like, Mm -hmm. all right, I'm driving here. But if I look at my phone every one second, I can maybe post this reel on the way to work. (laughs) It's like, I'm miserable the whole time I'm driving. The reel comes out really bad. And I'm like, bro, what are you doing? Just, not just to mention drive. how unsafe it is. It's like, this is not something to brag about. Like, oh, you're addicted to work. Like, actually, that's not something to be proud of. It's something to to adjust. Like, the fact that we're so addicted to needing that positive reinforcement of self-esteem from being productive, it's like, it's not even the kind of productivity that we need. And it's not efficient. And it's also dangerous. It's like, I used to pride myself in wanting to work all the time. And now it's something that I work on. Like, why? Like, it's just, it's something to get curious about. You know, it's not a shaming thing. It's more like, well, why do I need to feel productive all the time? Like, where am I not getting my self-esteem from that I'm filling it up with that? You know, that's becomes the question. So, so what was the answer to that question? Because I'm still searching for that. (laughs) I'm still Um, like deeply searching for that. And I haven't found the answer. Yeah, it's an ongoing process. I would say it shifts all the time for me. But the biggest thing that I've been practicing lately and going into lately with the help of some mentors and different people in my life is really giving my power away in the sense that what I was doing is the more productive I felt and the more I was creating, whether it was content or money or work or other things, winning accomplishments, um, the better about myself I felt what really comes, what really becomes obvious when I start thinking about that is it kind of goes back to the perception and the cheering and the booing thing. I'm like, oh, well, I'm getting the self-esteem from cheering because being productive makes me better because it makes me, it gives me money. It gives me status. It gives me attention. It gives me love. It gives me, um, you know, praise and, and satisfaction when really like my power is in me, like just being and getting self-esteem from your accomplishments. It's not a bad thing. It's very natural. It's very human. Um, but what I've learned from myself is that, like my power, like I have my hand on my stomach right now. Like I'm kind of just imagining like my power is already in me. Like I already have everything that I need. And the more I get in touch with that, 
the better work I do anyway. And if I'm too busy all the time, then I'm not really in touch with that. I'm just kind of going on autopilot and my work might come out like 60%. But if I'm in touch with this, I may do less work, but it comes out at a hundred and it's more impactful and it's more powerful. It's more efficient and effective, you know? Wow. It's crazy how we came full circle because in the beginning we were talking about ignoring the cheering and the booing. Mm. Yeah, you know, with with me, um, I'll have days where I'll have like two, three training sessions. I'll meet with a client. I made a good amount of money that day. And when I go to sleep that day, I'm like, all right, what a productive day. Cool. But then I I have a a notes app on my phone. It's just the happiness journal. Mm. And I just put what what days do I feel genuinely happy? And I write down what I did that day. And it never has anything to do with productivity. Like for my mom's birthday, I took her driving around. We blasted music and just had a great time. And at the end of the day, I felt great. And I'm like, oh, that's what makes me happy. You know, reading a book, stuff like that. Not always looking for validation from other people and even myself. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. I'm glad it's been helpful. Yeah, it's, it's so true. It really just comes down to redefining what we view as happiness or redefining what we view as enoughness and, um, and that being whole feeling like we can be whole at any moment with ourselves rather than trying to be whole from external stuff. And it's not like a, you know, this whole, like, I'm so in touch with myself and I'm Buddhist now and I'm a monk <laughs> and, I, and, and I don't need outward things because I'm a human being and we're in 2022 yeah. and these things are <laughs> coming back to 2022. Yeah. This is real life. Like it would be silly to act like none of that matters. Of course that stuff matters. Mm-hmm. But if it's our soul place that we're getting self-esteem from, I think that's when I get into trouble per- personally. Yeah. Because, you know, when you base that on something external, it, it, it gives us out of a your lot control. Of yeah, it's um, out of your because now if it's taken away, you don't you, you can't do anything about it because it wasn't in your control. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all the CEOs, all the successful people always talk about their morning routine, how they get <laughs> up at 4 a.m. and they meditate and they drink bulletproof coffee, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so I am very interested in, in, in um, hearing your one and a half hour morning routine you were telling me about. Yeah. So first, I think the most important thing about it is that it's flexible. I aim for an hour and a half, but I commit I commit to my sleep, right? So if I'm going to bed, I, uh, so this is literally exactly, excuse me, exactly what I do. I try to get up at 6.15 because I typically leave my house around 8.00. Uh So, or 7.45 or 8. So, to go uh, train. Mm -hmm. So, I try to get up at 6.15. But if I'm, which means in order to get between 7 and hours of sleep, I need to be in bed at 10.15. Going to bed and it's 11, I'm going to push my alarm to be at 6.30 or 6.45 so that I can keep that commitment of 7 to 8 hours of sleep. Because I didn't used to do that. I used to be like, no, it has to be this because I need to do, man, like. For me, if I'm not getting enough sleep, I'm just not going to be efficient. And it's not something to be glamorized. I used to glamorize that and I don't glamorize it anymore. So I try to aim for an hour and a half. And then if it is a full hour and a half, what it looks like is I wake up. It's funny. I actually just looked over because I'm in my room right now. I have a whiteboard with my affirmations on it, but it has my morning routine on it because if the I'm the same like, thing. That's so funny. Oh, cool. It's <laughs> funny because if I'm half asleep in the morning, I'll like look at my lip. I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do next on my routine? (laughs) And I just glance over and it's there. So literally like, I'll just, I'll read it. Like I wake up, 
It's uh, I say thank yous out loud. I, I say a couple different things. I'm thankful. A bunch of water. So I sleep with my water by my bed so I can just chug it in the morning, wash my face, make my bed. I do I have a morning routine with my writing. So I do my my writing. I send my I use whoop uh, activity tracker. I send my recovery to my accountability group, which is like my coaches, my ADCC team. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually like will burn sage or something like that and do some more thank yous. I get dressed. I do a meditation, like a five to 10 minute meditation. Mm-hmm. I say some prayers, some protection, some energy practices for the day. Then go downstairs, make my smoothie. I have the same, I have the same smoothie every morning, uh, coffee. And then I come back upstairs. I do uh, a, a recovery practice that I send to my um, my sponsor in my program. I do my readings. I have a couple of readings that I do. And then I listen to a podcast called Success Hotline, which is a four minute long podcast. If I do all of that, if I have an hour and a half to hour 45, I'll finish that. And then I'll probably read for like 20 more minutes because that'll feel good to me. Um, uh-huh. But if it's an hour or 45 minutes, sometimes a couple of those things will get taken out and I won't do the extra reading. So I just kind of have like this baseline of what feels great. And then I'll give and take based on how much time I actually have. And then I leave the house and I kind of go into my day, but I don't sacrifice the sleep the point the other day where I was only going to get like five hours of sleep and I was like okay I'm in a camp like instead of doing my cardio before training I'm going to sleep till 7 30 and I'm going to get hours and then I'm cardio in the evening and I didn't like doing that because it didn't feel good but it was a but in full like but holding myself accountable to taking care of my sleep meant that I had to do my cardio at a time that I didn't like it because I do keep my commitments. So I made sure I still did it. And then the next day I was like, okay, I'm going to bed on time because I don't want to do that shit again. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like taking care of yourself and keeping your commitments to yourself is a great way to reinforce good habits. You know? Yeah. I I definitely, you know, um, as far as sleep, sleep has been a huge issue with me my whole life. I don't know if it's a genetic thing, um, because my whole family is night owls. Um, mm, and, me too. Yeah, there were, yeah, there were periods of my life, like especially when I was like 19, 20, I was nocturnal the whole year. It was really bad. Oh my gosh, that's wild. Yeah. And um, so I wanted to ask you, uh, how important is it to wake up early in the morning? So it really, uh, I'm not one of those people that's like, you need to wake up at four and you need to do the whole thing. Uh, I would say that it just depends on your lifestyle. For me, I am a night owl for sure. Yeah. I have a tendency to stay up very late, but I know that I feel better during my days if I train early in the day, right? So do, doing my training early feels good. Now, in order to maximize my training, if it's going to be at 10, I need to be awake around seven o'clock, if not earlier, because if I wake up at nine and go to, and I did that for years, I'd wake up at nine, I get to train or I wake up at eight, I drive an hour, you know, those kinds of things. But I'm just not like, if that's going to be my primary training of the day, that's the two hour chunk that I'm using to move towards my jujitsu goals. I need to be primed to go into that training. So I need to like have this self-respect and discipline to give myself time to prime for that. Right. So if I need to wake up at seven, well, that means I need this many hours of sleep. I'm going to try to go to bed by 11. If I'm going to wake up at 6.15, I'm going to try to go to bed by 10.15. So I don't think it's important necessarily. To, but say your training is at 12 and now you're waking up at 9 o'clock because that feels optimal for you and you like being up yeah. late. Then I think that's okay too. I will say though, being a night owl, I know 
that what I get done personally between the hours of 11 and two is a lot different than what Dude, I get we done. have so much in common. It's so scary. Yeah. I think, Can you know, I, it's funny. Let me see I think... if I could finish your sentence for you. Yeah. Between, go ahead. Uh, between 11 PM and 2 AM. I'm going to guess that you're the most creative. I can get really creative. Yeah. I get true. so creative at 2 AM. The thoughts just come soaring into my brain. Yeah. For some reason, as soon as the sun sets, Oh my God, mm. I become a different person. But just like you, the best training is in the day. But my creativity yeah. is shot during the day. It's so weird. Well, you know what's weird is I, I what I was going to say too, like is what I get done between 11 and 2 productivity-wise and taking care of myself and all that kind of thing is a lot lower than what I get done between 6 and 9 in the morning. Mm. So shifting my clock to to going to, to forcing myself to go to bed around 10 or 11 really helps me get more done throughout the day. Because if I, like, I would notice that my creativity is really high late at night. If I'm not taking care of myself properly during the day, because it takes me longer to kind of get into that mode. But if I wake up early and I'm taking care of myself really well throughout the day, then I will get really creative around five or 6 PM. Interesting. So it's just shifting the time. It has nothing to do with the sun or anything. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, this is all an experiment, right? Life is just an experiment, so I'm figuring it out as we go. But that's what I'm finding lately. I get a lot. I get a lot more out of my day. I prefer being up late, but I get a lot more out of my day, and I feel better by the end of the day when I shift my clock and I'm up earlier. Interesting. I'm kind of living the life right now that you're saying is not good to live, and I definitely (laughs) feel like I wake up for uh, 11 a.m. training sessions at like nine or ten. Right. And I, uh, I totally understand what you mean about being prime because when I get up early, I do like a nice half an hour warm up before training right. starts. I get so much more out of it than yeah. when I show up cold and just flow roll to warm up, you know? Well, when you think about it, that 30 minute to an hour that you're doing then, like how does that compare to the 30 minutes to an hour between 1 and 2 a.m.? Exactly. Like it's a trade, you know, everything's a trade. Like you only get so many hours in the day. And I think I can speak on it so confidently because I've done both so consistently, like both versions I've had a lot of experience with. And so I just don't kid myself anymore. I'm like, yeah, you know, that feels good. And it's nice to do that. But like what I really want my life to look like, I have a lot of big goals and dreams and there's only so many hours in the day. So Mm -hmm. then, you know, at the same time though, then I'm not going to beat myself up about it and be like, oh my God, I should have done this. Like the other day when I stayed up until I think it was like 1.30 or 2 or uh-huh. no, it was like 1.30. I was like, oh shit, am I going to wake up at 6.30 and get five hours of sleep? And I was like, nope, you did nope. this. So don't beat yourself up about it. Sleep until 7.30 or sleep until 8 or whatever I decided. Go to training and do your cardio later. Like there are ways to negotiate with yourself and then reassess your commitments after the fact. Interesting. That's something I'm horrible at doing, by the way. I'm the guy that I'll just take, I'll just be like, you know what? I guess we'll just sleep in five hours and yeah. then the whole day is ruined. Yeah. I used to, like, I used to do that so much. And now I'm just like, it's just not, um, like it, it, you know, that, that form of bringing like so much romanticism and obsession around like suffering and how much you're willing to do and sacrifice mm-hmm. and all that. I just think I was able to let that go because I didn't pull my self-esteem from it anymore. And I realized that that was actually a form of self-obsession too. Like it really is. 
Hundred percent. Um, you know, I remember being in the accounting office and listening to the partners talking about, oh man, I got like only five hours. He's like, yeah. Oh, well, I only got competition four hours. of suffering. Same with weight cutting, man. It's the same exact thing. Oh, I cut this much weight. Oh, really? Well, this is what I have to go through. It's a competition of suffering. And until we get out of that, and it's like, where is your power? Oh, you're giving your power away to how much you can suffer. Like, that's not somewhere I want to put my power. Like, I just don't live there anymore. So where would you say most of your power is now? Most of my power comes from being as as much as I can being in oneness, like really just being in the sense that like every living being thing, like we are all made of the same stuff. And I'm trying to contribute to my community and do things that make me feel alive and connect to God or spirit or light, whatever you want to call it, the universe as often as I can and kind of live out what my purpose is. And that changes all the time. Like I just try to follow what feels right as far as my purpose goes. And mm-hmm. if I'm living in oneness and I'm out of judgment and I'm out of gossip and I'm just trying to be the best that I can and know that I'm the same as everybody else. And we're all the same. We're all part of one another. Then like I kind of am led in to the next best step. And my power comes from living there and just being at peace with that and being out of, being in surrender, not needing to control the outcome of everything, being in surrender around the idea that it's like, well, what are your goals? I'm like, well, here are some things I want to do, but I actually don't really know. And I'm not very attached to them. It's like I'm out mm. of attachment and I'm in surrender. I'd say that's where the power comes from. Interesting. I, I like how you mentioned, you know, giving back because um, that's something I really struggled with. Um, <clears throat> I remember I was uh, speaking to, you know, a friend of mine who's really religious and he said, you know, we're all here to be in service of each other. So I'm like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll volunteer at the homeless shelter. And to be honest, that didn't really give me too much fulfillment. Mm-hmm. I volunteered, you know, for Thanksgiving, feeding the homeless and going to shelters. And I kind of didn't feel anything either. Mm. But then once, once I opened up my own school and I helped people learn jujitsu and become confident in that way, I noticed that brings me immense happiness. Like even if Mm. I wasn't getting paid for it. Yeah, exactly. We can all find the way that our energy leads us into being of service, like not just for our, like other people, but for ourselves too, like what really lights Mm -hmm. you up. And if we're doing the things that light us up, then it's going to light other people up too. Obviously if it's not harmful, of course, (laughs) (laughs) But if we're doing things that light us up, it should, you know, the idea is that that lights other people up and it brings good into the world. And a lot of times for me, that has been around surrender of releasing what I thought I needed to attach to, to find that light. Like, for example, I thought I needed to win X, Y, or Z to get that, get that meaning and get that self-esteem when I really, it was just about the pursuit. Like the pursuit of it is what was lighting me up and getting it feels really good, but I don't need it to be okay. I'm okay with just the pursuit, you know? In other words, enjoying the process. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Well, yeah, um, we just hit an hour and that was, uh, that interview went so much different than I thought it was going to be. We got real deep <laughs> today, <laughs> which was Yay, pretty cool. Good. You know, Always I thought trying I was to bring the just talking about jujitsu, but jujitsu was like 10% of the interview, which was funny. That happens with me a lot, you know, <laughs> it, it really does. But one thing that people really uh, enjoy about my podcast is that I have jujitsu people on and we rarely talk about jujitsu because I feel like that's kind of the last thing people want to hear. People want to get to know who you are, you know? 
Yeah, exactly. They see the jiu-jitsu on Instagram all that and all that stuff. So I'm really glad that we can bring some other things into the conversation. That was awesome. Thanks so much for having me and asking, for asking good questions. It was awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you back on the show and uh, hopefully after you win that ADCC gold. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having awesome. me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there you have it, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Before you leave, <clears throat> make sure to follow me at K-O-O-L-R-A-K, at Immortals Jiu-Jitsu, and at Rambling with Rack. Please check out my website, ImmortalsJiu-Jitsu.com. And if you are ever in the North Jersey area and want to train with the best, come to Immortals Jiu-Jitsu. Try your first free class ever. If you are listening to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other application, please give me five stars. Please share it on your stories and help the Sultanate grow. Thank you so much, guys. See you next time.